Please sit comfortably. If you hear those birds chirping in the background, just think of how lucky they are. They have no concept of enlightenment. (laughs) This um, is the last talk and um, the title of it is The Discipline of No Gain. And there's a story from um, Hyakujo, the same teacher who was the teacher in the koan yesterday about kicking over the water bottle. And a monk asked him, what is enlightenment? And he said, just sitting, just walking, just eating, just chopping wood, whatever it might be. And then the monk said, but isn't that what ordinary people do? And he said, no, that's not what ordinary people do. They don't just sit or just walk, whatever. They're thinking all the time, getting ahead of themselves, seeing what they can get out of it, avoiding things. So that's, ordinary people don't do that. Mm-hmm. They don't just sit, just walk. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is the, that, that koan or that story really encapsulates the essence of what our particular practice is and, and the practice that we've inherited, particularly from, from Dogen. And what's, what's unique about Dogen's teaching, like all teachers have some aspect of the Dharma that they emphasise a lot. Some of them might be emptiness, um, impermanence, compassion, whatever it might be. But Dogen emphasised the central centrality of no gain in practice. And so, just sitting with no gain, just walking with no gain, etc. And uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful practice because so many people get caught up in spiritual practice, whether in Buddhism, Christianity, yoga, whatever, And they come with this idea that they're going to master something. And when I can master myself and my mind and control things more, um, then my my life will go better. And it's a bit of a myth uh, because we never master anything. Do you know the words? We don't use it here, fortunately, or some people do. But in in Japan, they use the word Zen master. Um, Now, that hierarchy's been flattened a bit more in, in the West and we just refer to Zen teachers. Very few people refer to themselves or the students refer to them these days as Zen masters. Um, but there's a sense of being a teacher. I found recently in the Zen Centre of San Diego after Joko's died and so on, um, they refer to the teachers, not even as teachers, but um, practice leaders. In my mind, that's, that's flattening the hierarchy too much, right? Um, teachers is fine, masters is too much. To me, the teacher is a bit of a middle way there. And, um, but people who, you know, referring to ourselves, referring to people, teachers as masters, and then thinking that we're going to aspire to some kind of mastery that they have, is a, is a terrible delusion. Mm-hmm. All Zen masters should go to hell. Right? That's where mm-hmm. they belong. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't mastered anything. Life, as Joko used to say, life is the master. You're not the master, life is the master. You turn up to life as it is, just walking, just sitting, um, just being in a car accident, right? just being assaulted, 
you know, whatever it might be, you, you turn up to just that experience. And if we look at the various different ways in which um, we practice, you know, if we break practice down into those three components of prajna or insight, um, uh, serenity that comes from meditation, and sila or the precepts, you know, which is about um, cultivating moral integrity. If you look at each of those, there's nothing actually that we gain from any of them if you break it down. So, say around the practice of doing koans, um, you're in a, in, a, in a superficial sense, you pass koans and, and you may pass 10 or 100 or 1,000, you know, whatever. Um, and you may have the, the relative sense of gaining something, right? But you haven't gained anything, right? Um, each koan that you do, you've lost something, not gained anything. You were, the, the, the koans help you to see whether you're, where you're stuck in a concept and the, and, the, and the koan helps you cut through the concept. So if you've passed a hundred koans, you've lost a hundred different versions of conceptual delusion. You haven't gained anything at all. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what Joko used to say, enlightenment's not the gaining of something, it's the losing of something. In its general sense, it's the losing of this rigid ego identity that we have. But even when you come to meditation and serenity, like we going through a session, you know, on the last day after all the work we've done, you know, most of us probably feel more serene, you know, and that we've, we've dropped into our body. Yeah, that's what happens. But in, in a way, that serenity was there all the time. Your, your body was just pumping, your heart was just pumping blood through your body and your ears were breathing it and the oxygen, the carbon dioxide knew what they were doing and balanced themselves out and, you, and your brain worked and it, it just knew what to do mm-hmm. with its native organic intelligence. But we got above it all in the thinking, you know, identified with our thinking and trying to work it all out and creating dramas in our mind. And so when we dropped all that, we just dropped into the body of serenity. That's all we did. It was there all the time. We didn't actually generate it. So there's nothing to be gained from meditation either. There's just something to be lost. And then when it comes to the precepts, you know, if we think that we're gaining merit from doing good things and giving ourselves a tap on the shoulder about how, how good we've become through our own efforts, that's also, also delusional. Right? Um, when we connect, when, when we become more connected with life, more empathically, compassionately connected with life as it is, and we see that everything's just a connection and everything is one, mm-hmm, then what will arise out of that is that you would want to treat other beings or other things the way that you would like you to be treated because you see that, that common identity that, that's there. So if that's at the basis of it, you haven't become good. You were good in the beginning, right? There was the, your, true, your true self was non-clinging, non-grasping, non, non-selfish, you know? And, and so when you're restored to that true nature, well, you didn't, through your own efforts, become good. 
Mm-hmm. already were. Mm-hmm. So even when you break it down to all the different disciplines, those three disciplines that make up practice, isn't it? We don't gain anything from it. We've just lost something from it. And it's important to... Um, and, and also, do you know, do you know when, when, when people say, I, I became enlightened, what the fuck are you saying? You know, excuse my language, but what are you saying? I, I, became, I gained something, I became enlightened, you know. If you look back in, in, the, in the, um, the literature, you find really touching stories about um, Sozan, I think it was, who he and his, his, his friend, you know, were sitting one winter you know, in a hut out on a mountain and, and he had this great awakening that his friend helped him to realise. And the, the name of the mountain was Turtle Mountain. He didn't say, oh, I just became enlightened. He said, the whole of, Tur- the whole of Turtle Mountain has become enlightened. Because hmm. enlightenment is just, I don't usually use that word, but the suchness of things as it is has always existed. You, you can't, it's totally delusional to think I became enlightened. Who became enlightened? It's a, it's a statement of, um, of self-gain. People often say to me when they, they, they mention to me about opening, awakening experiences, big ones, little ones, doesn't matter. Um, when it's genuine, it's, it's that sense that oh, everything, everything is enlightened. That's what comes with it. Not I am. Mm-hmm. But... Let's look at um, discipline more, like the discipline of no gain. So, um, obviously, you've got a choice, you know. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at reducing the suffering in your life and the suffering of others and so on, um, and you want to take up... You can take up practice, which involves some kind of discipline, like sitting still, quiet, not talking and coming to a session following the form of the session. Or you can just go, as some people do, oh, there's nothing to gain, so I don't have to practice. Mm-hmm. But then that's a form of gaining as well. Mm-hmm. And you just still keep thinking while you're, talk, while, thinking while you're walking and thinking while, you, while you're eating, etc. You haven't really come into it. So it does involve a discipline which looks like then you're trying to master something, but you, you, the discipline is not to master something or to gain mastery, it's to lose. But we need to look at the way we approach discipline. Um, from my family therapy training um, and childhood development training, um, there's one thing that really stuck with me once that I read and it's stuck me with me for like over 30, 40 years and it's a baseline that I come back to um, and it's the psychological needs of a child and what a child needs to grow into a, a flourishing human being with good parenting and community and that is one, they need safety, right? so they need safety from, from violence, trauma, etc. Um, 
and then they need love, which is pretty, pretty straightforward. And they also need a variety of diverse and interesting experiences, <coughs> explore their environment and so on. And the, the last one that they need is boundaries. So boundaries is about, you know, learning how to respect others, you know, and, and to cooperate with others, you know, and be, be respectful of others, but to be respectful of oneself as well. And within boundaries comes ethics, you know, and social cohesion and so on. And, um, and so they're all the needs that need to be met. And you could say that about um, you could say that about uh, a Buddhist sangha as well. You know about about session too. We all need safety. We need to feel like we're loved. We need some diversity of experience. Like we're not just doing sitting all day long. Uh, we have a diversity of sutras and walking and sitting and dharma talk and koans and walking by ourselves and mindful movement. It's kind of mixed up a bit. So we need all that as well. And we need the boundaries, you know, no talking, you know, no eye contact, um, following the schedule, being on time, all of those things as well. So that's what makes up, you know, um, a, a flourishing environment for which, in which we can all grow. And so it's important to look at what ideas or patterns we've developed around discipline that might come from our own family background or our own culture. And like I mentioned, I think, in the first or second talk about the example of the young woman I was seeing in therapy who had divorced parents, one was really hard and, one, and, and had a backbone but wasn't soft. And the other one was soft but didn't have a backbone and was really just sort of floppy. Um, we, we, they're, they're not good role models for discipline. You know, being harsh, a harsh disciplinarian is not a good role model for, um, uh, in the way that we treat ourselves or treat others, but neither is the opposite. You know, we're, we're, we're just too soft and we don't, we don't provide a child with boundaries, you know. So you, you need both. And as I was mentioning in that talk, you see this as a family therapist all the time. You try and um, assess it and clarify what's happening. And you often come across in parenting hard, soft splits. You know, so it's polarised. The more that one becomes harder, the other one tries to soften it up. You know, and the more they soften it up, the hard one thinks their boundaries are being undermined. And away they go, and it doesn't work. And particularly when kids get to adolescence, while the parents are fighting all this, they, they shoot right up the middle and do whatever they want to do, right? Uh-huh. I can hear the parents laughing. <laughs> um, and, and so we, we need this balance so that, like, um, just like parents in a family, we, we need to treat ourselves and work out a way, like my client is, of like integrating the best of those two things and dropping the worst of them. And it comes back to that, that simple um, statement before from Joan Halifax, strong back, soft front. Mm-hmm. They're not opposed to one another. They go together with one another. So we can have the gentleness and the love, you know, and the safety, but, but we also need to provide the boundaries as well. 
And that's the way, that's, that's, the whole, that's the wholesome way that we can provide our own discipline towards practice. We can be too hard with ourselves, too harsh, or we can just be wishy-washy, right? You know, and not, not really discipline ourselves with good, firm mindfulness practice. And sometimes people have um, very harsh parenting and they either repeat the pattern with their own kids or they go the total opposite and they say, I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to bring my kids up like the way I was. And then they just have no boundaries, do you know? And there's no discipline or whatever and they just go the other direction. Um, and they create havoc in their own lives or other people's lives. Um, or some people realise they weren't given enough discipline and they might become too hard, but often it's, they become overprotective, I find. And they, they, they give the impression that the world's a really dangerous place out there in, in an exaggerated way. And they rob their children of independence and autonomy, which is not good either. So we can have a lot of... We either follow those patterns we've been given from our culture or we react against them in ways which are not necessarily helpful rather than integrating them. And, uh, and part of it's cultural as well. Most of the, most of the cultural forms of, of discipline or education that we've inherited from our, our background is often one where you're motivated by fear and you're, motiv- you're motivated by fear of failure. And so that drives you, you know, get your assignments in or done, you know, achieve, achieve. And what we're finding out now through mindfulness, self-compassion, etc., is that if people are compassionate with themselves, which doesn't mean being floppy, you know, and undisciplined, but if people are compassionate with themselves, it actually acts as a better motivator than fear. But most, most of our... Most of our motivation we've got from our schooling, etc., comes from, from fear. It's not necessarily... Probably need a bit in there, um, but when it dominates, it just, it just uh, erodes our motivation because we get too anxious. So strong back, soft front. Do you know what it reminds me of? I was realising there was a very well-known book years and years ago in the 1960s which was really popular. It's a, a wonderful book called um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And it was written by one of Robert Aitken's teachers, um, whose name escapes me now, a Japanese teacher who was a um, sensei, not a roshi, but um, a, really, a really wonderful, unique teacher. And... Um, no, he did the illustrations, yeah. Um, Zen flesh, zen bones, right? Zen bone, strong back. Zen flesh, soft front. Uh-huh. It was pointing towards the same thing. We need a backbone, right? And we need to be soft at the same time. Zen flesh, zen bone. And it's important, you know, that when, when we provide leadership or, you know, parenting in our life too, that we, we've got that integration of those, those, those aspects there together. 
So it's not too harsh and it's not too wishy-washy as well, but it creates a sort of compassionate, firm context for everyone to work in. Finally, um, one of the ways of working with yourself around discipline in, in session or just in your everyday life is where humour comes in, you know, around, around not taking yourself too seriously, but not, but not letting yourself off the hook either. Um, and the, the best kind of um, humour is humour directed towards yourself rather than other people. And I'll give you an example of it. Um, when we were doing Kinhin this morning and we stopped at the lily pond, do you know it's that beautiful lily pond? So the lily pond's there in front of me. And I've been walking along and I realised I was in this little narrative, this little bubble. And what the little bubble was about was I was criticising other people for being critical. <laughs> and I was, you shouldn't be critical. And, and then I went, yeah, but what are you doing, Jeff? You're doing the same thing, right? You, know? you shouldn't be critical. And, um, but I wanted to keep doing it. You know, like when you get a bit self-righteous, you, yeah, but, but I should be doing this. You know? and, and, then, and then the lily pond spoke to me. The lily pond said, Jeff, I'm here. <laughs> this beautiful pond. Like, look at me. Look at me, please. You know? No, no, no. You know? And, and then... These are, these are words I say to myself. I wouldn't say it to anyone else. But you know what I say to myself? It's like, Jeff, you're a nut job. <laughs> <laughs> Here you are, this, this beautiful lily pond, and you're going on and on about this stuff. You know, and you're just as worse as the people you're criticising. You know? You're a nut job. <laughs> but it's not done harshly. You know, it's like a wake-up call to myself. And, and, it's, and it can be useful to do that in everyday life, do you know, when you, you find you're caught up in some reactive pattern, you know, that you, you frequently get into, you just go, hold on, nut job. And then it brings you back to, to whatever you, you need to be brought back to. So please remember that as we, um, we go into our everyday lives after session. As Joko used to say, session is the easy practice. It's everyday life, which is hard. And um, let's bring that, that firm but kind discipline into the practice of no gain as we go about our life. Just driving the car, you know, just picking up the kids, just doing the shopping, just paying the bills. 